Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Reports Weekly Technology Report. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Joining us today is our resident cybersecurity and artificial intelligence guru, John Cofrancesco, the founder of the artificial intelligence company, Applied AI Company. John, welcome back. It's always an honor and pleasure having you on the program. It's always a pleasure being here. Thank you so much for having me back again. Uh, thank you uh, again. And before we get started, HII sponsors our global coverage. General Atomics and Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval uh, coverage. John, I want to start with uh, the great uh, New York Times story on China's penetration of U.S. military and civilian uh, networks and the concerns. Uh, that Beijing has left behind malware that can be activated during a crisis to impede an American uh, response, uh, you know, specifically in the Indo-Pacific, specifically over Taiwan. Uh, retired uh, United States Navy uh, Rear Admiral Mark Montgomery uh, of the Foundation for Defensive Democracies joined us on Monday uh, to discuss this. Uh, and I just wanted to get your, your sense on this, right? I mean, it looks like the administration is prioritizing this. Um, you know, there is a sort of wide-ranging hunt that's underway to find this stuff. Although I have to say, this is something that's been sort of a known uh, threat and a known uh, concern. Um, what, do you, what do you make of the re revelation and more importantly, the remediation steps and why this time maybe should be different than past times? You know, Vago, as we've talked about many times, I, I think this this sort of reveal of this particular attack is, is the equivalent of saying the sun is bright. We, we know, and we've talked about this, you and I, many times that the Chinese are actively looking for vulnerabilities. In this case, they found some weaknesses in how Microsoft uh, had, had built their defenses, but this is super common. And, and it's an obvious thing for the opponent to do. They want to collect your vulnerabilities. They want to leave behind the malware so that if something does kick off, they have a, a list of cyber weapons they can deploy at will on day one. And, um, but it is something that is uh, persistent. I'm not uh, blaming and, and not trying to take a ding on Microsoft. I mean, they are the backbone of the global cyber infrastructure, right? So, I mean, if you're going to be breaking into anything, you're going to be trying to crack uh, into uh, Microsoft. What are the actions we're, say we're seeing? And more importantly, what are the actions we need to see to actually move the needle on this and move it at speed? You know, I actually think this is a pretty standard response, right? It's go through, check the systems you think that have been hit, do code signing analysis, do some, uh, do some tracking to, to see potentially what information has already been given up, and then look at akin systems to see what else might they have tagged. I think the practical reality is, is Microsoft, as you say, really overall does quite a good job, and they provide a lot of resources to the community writ large. So it's hard to, to sort of take the shine off of, of what they're providing. This is going to happen to any major company, particularly Microsoft. They're such a big target. And so I think in terms of Microsoft as an organization, I don't look at this as a ding on them. I think the response is pretty standard and good. I think your second question is a lot harder one to answer. It's what else should we, sh should we be doing? And, and that's where you really start to get into a combination of, well, are, you know, are we willing to accept some, accept some economic impacts to change our behaviors? Are we willing to pay a little bit more uh, for our, our standard services like water, electric, like email? Hard questions there. I think we will probably have to 
if we want to mitigate these type of risks. The question is, do we want to do we want to bear those costs? I mean, first, right, it depends on the nature of the threat. And this, I would argue, is a pretty significant threat, right? It's a known threat. It's one you're getting your arms around. But this is a little bit like um, Chris Cleary, the uh, Navy's cyber advisor, would join us and be very honest about how much money would be required for us to address some of the known uh, vulnerabilities we have in weapons systems and in software. And what we were talking about on an annualized basis was like, let's say, three quarters of a billion dollars. Um, I would say that that's in the totality of the Navy budget, something that should be actually a pretty easy lift on an annual basis, right? If, if that's the amount you need to safeguard your infrastructure. What's the number, right? I mean, you're somebody who's as cognizant as to how much this stuff costs. Um, how, how much are we talking about? Because when we talk about the resource, I understand everything is a balance, but I mean, this is something pretty fundamental, right? If your ship can't get underway because you're subject to a malware attack, is it a $10 billion national cost? Is it a $20 billion national cost? Which I would argue, is, you know, you, you'd better spend that fast and prioritize it. I'm a big advocate for increasing spending on cybersecurity. And I think uh, Chris Cleary's number of sort of three quarters of a billion would be a, a good start. But I don't actually think that would calculate for, for what the real cost of cyber defense would be. I put that number much closer to say 100 billion. And maybe even north of that, because you have to remember the majority of the assets the, the enemy wants to attack are not government owned assets. So you have this really difficult political situation where either the government is going to have to subsidize many companies, particularly big companies, particularly the big companies that that voters do not want to see subsidized, uh, or you're going to have to accept the vulnerability. Now, the, the third the third rail for this, right, is is regulation. And I have advocated for that. Chris Cleary has advocated for that. Mark Montgomery obviously led quite a number of, of, of advocacy organizations on that. The reality is those big companies do not want to be regulated. And that's where the real cost burden comes, because if we do regulate them from a cyber perspective, those costs are going to be borne by the, by the individual voter, right? It's going, to be, it's going to be borne by their clients. And that's what you would have to do in order to add real material security at a probably at a sufficient level in the cyber realm. And that is a tough pill to swallow. So I think what we're doing today is we're putting reasonable defenses around our most vulnerable areas, but it is the case that there are still really important parts of our society that are more or less undefended or certainly very underdefended that are easy targets today. Um, let me uh, take you to uh, the administration's actions to bolster uh, national cyber defenses. We have a now a, a national uh, cyber strategy. You've joined us numerous times to uh, discuss that, and it's generally uh, played to very good uh, reviews. It looks like it's getting some of the investment against it. The administration has just uh, rolled out its national workforce and education strategy. From your standpoint, you know, give, give us your assessment on that. Uh, where you think it's on the mark uh, and where in your, your typical uh, great shirt, okay belt, decent shoes, uh, kind of <laughs> constructive uh, approach, uh, you know, what you, what you make of it. So I think there were some parts of this that were really good. I mean, you, you see that NSA and others are putting grants out. I mean, they, they really get into some detail on this. We're going to put out grants for cyber. We're going to put together programs for cyber. So that's a really, really good start. And I was actually enthused to see that they had actually gotten to detail. A lot of times these strategies are 36,000, you know, foot high strategies, you know, they kind of wave on high. We're going to, 
we're going to try and do something here. Here they actually gave some specifics, which was really good. I think our underlying issues really come down to maths and sciences, right? And so it is very difficult to teach somebody how to be uh, you know, a good cyber engineer or a good computer engineer if they don't have basic maths and sciences. And so where I think they've done a very good job on, hey, we're going to really focus on you know, building XYZ programs, I think they have missed the underlying issue is that America's become bad at math. So we, we are probably going to have to spend time to fix that major issue before we're probably going to get uh, a really good answer on this second issue, which is let's have more cyber staff. Uh, but one of the dynamics that is uh, interestingly changing is, uh, right, more and more people are going into STEM fields, more and people are getting attracted to engineering, right, whether it's on the space side or whether it's on the sustainability side, people are intrigued, uh, right, but let's make a better world, where is that going to be, it's going to be through better engineering, Um you know, so it looks like there is a little bit of an uptick uh, in that. And obviously, we made this national, you know, infrastructure uh, and science uh, investment. Do you do you see sort of a conjoined linkage that, you know, the, that investment, uh, you know, whether it's in semiconductors or uh, on sustainability are actually going to generate some of those skill sets that we need in the cyber field and kind of spill over into them? Yeah, well, I, I absolutely think we're going to get some more the investments we've made will result in an increase of cyber talent. I, I absolutely believe that. That's why I'm laudatory of what they've done. I just think that that increase is probably not going to match supply requirements, right? That's so uh, the, the, the demand here is going to go through the roof. And I'm going to give you an example. So you've been following the large language models, the GPT, uh, chat GPT, BART, et cetera. What a lot of people haven't been following is that there are now malware tools that are built on those exact platforms, right? That's so, Dark right. Bert is a great example. So here you have a generative AI whose sole purpose is to create malware. So instead of a sleepy human sitting there hacking away, sending out some worm, you can now have a generative AI continuously looking for vulnerabilities without a human nonstop across every system. So the demand signal is going to go through the roof. So you got to look at that balance, old school economics, balance of supply and demand. I do think our supply is going to increase here. I just think demand is going to explode. What, but from the, the demand piece, right? I mean, another long time frequent topic with many people on this uh, show, I've got to sh give a shout out to, uh, you know, JC Vega, you know, ep, ep, you know, we say we need, you know, you know, we need 500, uh, you know, we have a shortage of 500,000 talented people in cyber. We don't even achieve that number. And then the number grows to 750 and then that number becomes 1 million, then it becomes 1.5 million. And the challenge is, you know, how do you train them and how do you actually have to change the nature of how you use technology in order to try to do this? Because you're, you're never going to, right? I mean, at what point is AI, and you, you've discussed this a little bit, but at what point do we need to actually completely change the model about how we're training people and how we leverage and use technology? You know what I mean? I mean, we're a million and a half jobs short or a million jobs short, and we're going to a chat GPT you know, generative AI model, whereas you said, right, it's generating malware faster than humans can. I mean, we're, we're, how do we need to change this dynamic? Because you're not going to educate or train your way out of it, are you? I think there is a lot of education that will help. And there's a lot of training that will help. But ultimately, yeah, we're going to have to change the paradigm. And I actually think that's where there's a chance to win here. So the, the sort of the bright note here in this conversation is that just like you can use these generative AI for bad things, you can use them for good things. And, and I believe 
that the, the positive uses of these tools will far outweigh the negative uses of these tools. And it gives us as a society the ability to say, hey, we're no longer going to educate people to do menial tasks because those tasks can be done by a machine. Instead, we're going to educate people to do these more cerebral tasks, which hopefully will be more fulfilling on an individual level, but will certainly be more beneficial on a societal level. So, you know, if you think about the offices, right, all those people who are pushing paper today, those jobs are gone. They're going to be replaced by AI here shortly. But each one of those individuals could become a cyber expert, an AI expert, an automation expert, and their export, their their output as individuals will go up dramatically once we've trained them to do that. So I think that's sort of the paradigm shift. If you take one person who's a cyber expert, you can now multiply that person times a hundred or a thousand if they've been trained to use the AI, uh, you know, defensively. Do we? Um, McKinsey um, just put out. Uh, a report saying that this is generative AI's breakthrough uh, year. Uh, and many people would say, yeah, okay. But in, in always this stuff, right? I mean, there's a light headline, but there's actually more depth to that. Walk us through what are the implications of that and what are some of the deeper meanings and, and how we need to think about it. And folks are asking this question at a time when people are talking about, you know, how best to control the technology. And we'll get to that in a minute. Yeah. So I, I think, and I, I'm working with the large language models every day, right? This is what my company does. And here's what I, I have found and here's what I'm seeing in the market already is that what these systems do is they, they really take away menial work, right? That's a, the boring part of your job. And, you know, there's, and, and depending on your level at your office, there's between 30 and 70% of your job that is just repetitive copy and paste type of work. I mean, literally it's you're, you're taking data from one system and moving it into another system. All of that work is, is going to be gone. This, these tools are going to remove that burden from every user in our whole society. That may take a decade or two, but that is where we're going. The second thing these tools do is they lower the barrier to entry to some very, to some very difficult tasks. And what I mean by that is, is there are certain tasks that today you really require, say, a college degree to do. But when you have a generative AI bot as your assistant, you know, you might only need a middle school education to do. So I think we're going to see a big shift in some jobs to where today it's a college person, tomorrow it won't be. And that will free up the people who are college educated to go do really, more, like I said, more cerebral tasks, more exciting tasks. Like I could give you a discrete example. You know, today, if you, if you just follow the government news, right, putting together uh you know, articles and stock picks and things of this nature is done completely by hand. There are already bots. I have built some bots that are now doing that in a completely automated fashion. I will tell you that, you know, even on stock picks and things like that, the bot isn't quite as good as your, your premium analyst, but the bot's better than your average analyst already. And I think that's a positive outlook for society. It will free people up to do more exciting work. While there is considerable upside to AI, right? I mean, with the dawn of any new technology, you and I were, were joking about this, right? I mean, you know, James Cameron so terrified us with Terminator that everybody is like, ooh, I don't know, you know, the machines are going to take over and, and exterminate uh, the meat bags uh, to uh, mix uh, sci-fi uh, programs. Um, uh, shout out to Bender. Um, why, we're, we're now seeing increasingly, John, right? Um, senators on the right, Lindsey Graham partnering with Elizabeth Warren to warn uh, about the risks 
uh, of uh, the technology. Uh, the president uh, and the White House negotiated uh, an AI agreement with some of the leading companies that were uh, arguing that it's time to control the technology. You know, we've discussed on the program that some of this is they want a truce and don't want to get involved in a very, very expensive arms race among them. And then on top of that, you have, you know, Elon Musk and his antics that are prompting people to say, okay, look, I mean, we have to have some controls on, especially an AI empowered uh, and, and, and rather, you know, the social media field that has been driven by AI for a, a long time and their, and their algorithms. Where, where are we going in terms of the control oversight uh, the White House agreement. I mean, where where are we going in terms of what the the guardrails um, or maybe boundaries, some hard, some less hard, of of where we're going on AI? Well, I think there's a couple things in that. That's a, the first is that I am not a believer that we're going to have Skynet anytime soon. In fact, I don't know that we will ever have the type of singularity that's going to, you know, as you say, right, get rid of all the meat bags or or destroy all humans, that type of thing. I, I just don't see that coming to fruition, principally because in order to get there, not only does the AI have to be sentient, but the AI has to be sentient and malicious. So that, that is quite a big ask, and it's an incredible distance from where we are today. I mean, that, that would be like saying, we're going to you know, have Star Trek-style ships flying in the stars. I mean, we may get there someday, but, but not anytime soon. But So I think a lot of what's going on is that we have a lot of innate fear, right? And that's natural. We've been scared witless by sci-fi. I mean, I can remember as a kid watching Terminator 2 and just being shocked at how scary that movie was with the, 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 melting, the melting evil robot that was going to come get John Connor. And I think that there is a really, really powerful group of malicious actors that are also the companies who are inventing these tools that are looking to scare people into regulating the market such that they can win and only they can win in perpetuity. And that's really what you have going on is you have people utilizing fear in order to get these markets regulated. And again, when you see Elizabeth Warren and you see uh, you know, prominent Republicans, Lindsey Graham coming together on regulations, that is usually a sign that big businesses uh, and, and big, big interests from universities, et cetera, are also aligned. That is not always in the best interest of the regular person. And I think in this case, it's definitely not. Um, that's why I think where we will see guardrails really will come down into licensure, licensure of information and how we utilize data uh, in order to build large language models. A lot of court cases around this right now. I think that's what we have to pay attention to is can an AI read a book and then learn from that book without paying the author of the book? Where that court case ends is is really going to to change the the trajectory of AI in this country. Um, I, I I also think right. I mean, the writer's strike and what we're seeing in Hollywood is also going to set boundaries to that, isn't it? In in terms of um, right. I mean, because it's a legitimate case. Wait a minute, you could unemploy a whole bunch of writers. Um, how are you using my creative work to generate your model to then supplant me in making that creative work? Right? Does that end up shaping the boundaries of this in one way or another as well? Uh, totally. And I think there's a couple of really good use cases around that that are worth mentioning. That's the last time we had a major writer strike that caused the advent of reality TV. So Survivor became the big advent for the last writer strike. This time it may be AI writers. That's a very interesting there. There are already some legal cases 
that mirror this. In fact, if you remember the, the speaking of sci-fi, the movie Back to the Future, the actor who played Marty McFly's father in the first movie was not the actor who played Marty McFly's father in the subsequent movies. In the subsequent movies, the, the actor who played in that role was actually wearing a mask, right? That was modeled on the original actor. And that court case played out over many years. But, but in that case, Big Hollywood literally stole somebody's face in order to continue the series without paying the, the original actor, I believe his name is Glover, uh, you know, really his due. I think we're going to see very similar stuff here because you can train, the, you can train these uh, large language models on a particular writer or a particular actor and regurgitate them 80, 90 plus percent in terms of tone and tenor. So uh, very interesting to see how this will play out. Um, but by, by the way, uh, we always like to bring unique insights. And I got to tell you, as much as I love that movie, I had absolutely no idea uh, uh, the, the, the drama that was playing out in the background. I, uh, Great movies. Some of my favorites, some of my favorites, which is how yeah. I know that that goofy tidbit. Uh, yeah, uh, that's right. And, and who doesn't love Michael J. Fox, Christopher Lloyd, and of course, DeLoreans. Uh, let me just go back really uh, quickly to the White House agreement. I mean, is that an effective agreement? Is it a good first step? Is it a political band-aid? What, what is, what do you I mean, honestly, and I have such a negative opinion on this. And, and again, this is the equivalent of Neville Chamberlain coming off a plane, holding an agreement with Hitler. I mean, it just, it is such nonsense. It's not binding in any material way. Right. Right. It doesn't actually achieve any material outcome either for the, you know, for the average American or to constrain the companies whatsoever. So I, I think it is very much a, Hey, we have some controls on this. Don't look here again, sort of situation. I think the reality is it did nothing. And, and to be clear, I'm advocating that Washington take a strategic pause on regulating this. Right. I mean, you know, with respect to, to America's senators, I mean, I can't think of a group of people who are, are less equipped to regulate technology at this point than, than that group of people. So I advocate for a strategic pause. I think that the dangers that people are projecting here are way overspun. And I think the benefits are way, way underappreciated. The future through AI is going to be so bright. We're going to have doctors with, you know, infinite compassion. We're going to get rid of all the boring jobs. Those people who have those jobs, it's not like they're not going to do anything. They're still going to have work, but they're going to have more interesting work. They're going to have more important work. The key that we should be focusing on is how do we take those people and train them, educate them, and position them such they can do the more important, more interesting jobs. If our 100 senators would focus on that, we will get so much more return than if they try to regulate AI. I, uh, I completely agree with you. You know, having uh, spent uh, centuries, you know, fouling up the environment, there alone, there are massive numbers of untapped jobs that far surpass any coal job, oil job. And if you empower it and connect it uh, with AI, you're looking at kind of game-changing uh, outcomes, uh, ultimately, uh, right? I mean, in, in the last month, we've broken more heat records uh, and it's only getting worse from here. 
so, right, I mean, you have to figure at some point, you might want to be actually putting a lot more muscle uh, toward that. Um, let me, uh, there are two other very important questions we have to discuss, and we've got about five minutes or so left uh, in the program. Uh, Palantir founder and CEO, uh, Alex Karp, uh, is always uh, a thought leader uh, on matters cyber and especially AI. Uh, and he is, again, making the case that, you know, we need uh, to be thinking about AI weaponry and that we can't be squeamish. We have to understand our uh, adversaries will be doing this. And indeed, there are there is actually quite a lot of our military establishments and that which both our allies and adversaries uh, are employing that are very sophisticated use of AI that has, quote, a man marginally in the loop, uh, ultimately. And, you know, depending on your risk tolerance, you may think, mm, you know, I know it is China as preoccupied about an unmanned anti-ship missile that it's fire and forget and goes out there and hunts for ships could hit a U.S. destroyer, could hit a Philippine ferry. Do I really care? Not really. Uh, as long as I achieve my aim. Well, how is it that we need to be thinking, right? I mean, this is the first anniversary of uh, the uh, chief digital and AI office uh, job, Deputy Secretary of Defense, Dr. Kath Hicks sort of celebrated that, uh, I believe, today, if I'm not mistaken. How do we, be, how do we need to be thinking about this, uh, even though it's a conversation we've had several times? Well, yeah, I think the first thing is, and this is an unfortunate fact, we have to accept that AI is weapons now. Right. I mean, I, I think even down to the rifle, eventually we will have AI built into these into every weapon uh, because just a little bit, just a little bit of AI put into basically every tool makes that tool 10x, 100x, 1000x better. And our enemies are doing it. There's nothing we can do to stop them. And then we're going to also have to do it. And we are. The more important focus should be around ethics. Right. That's so. What are our ethics going to be with regards to these tools? We can't necessarily control what the enemy is going to do. One of the things that has always separated the United States, uh, and in fact, if you go to the World War II monument, you see this, it says, we came to save the people, not as conquerors, right? That's a, we, we came to liberate. We didn't come as conquerors. We need to have the same sort of ethos here. So we need to define as, as a society, what and where are we going to use these AI tools? How? We're going to use them. We need to put those parameters around it. And we need to do that with respect to our strategic and tactical interests, where we know our enemies will have zero ethics. Right. Uh, I prefer to be the country with ethics. I think it's what separates us. That's, that's where we need to be working now. Um, and I should uh, point out, she put the statement out on July uh, 19th. So uh, my apologies uh, on that. Uh, let me uh, take you to what actually uh, is um, an extraordinary uh, technological breakthrough that you brought to my attention, by the way, uh, LK99. Tell the audience how important this is, how game-changing it is, and how it actually could change everything. And I don't, I'm not somebody prone to say that lightly. Yeah, so this is, this is, this is one of those headlines where you first read it, and then you're like, okay, they're, they're lying. Uh, and normally I would default to that, but so there is a, a material called LK99. It was invented in South Korea, and it purports to be an ambient temperature, ambient pressure superconductor. And for those of you who aren't paying attention to nerd stuff, basically a superconductor is a conductive material that moves electricity or energy without resistance. The reason why I think it's worth bringing up here is that LK99 has now been validated twice. I mean, this has happened in the last three days. 
has now been validated twice in two separate laboratories. So if LK99 turns out to be real, and it now is looking like it's real, it's been validated twice, we are on the cusp of having a monumental change in material science, the likes of which humanity has not seen, uh, you know, since we went from bronze to iron. Um, to, to, put this in, to put this in perspective and a great tie to Back to the Future, if you want to have a hoverboard, you have to have a superconductor uh, that works at ambient temperature and ambient pressure. Uh, if you want to have uh, cost-free energy move from California to New York, so that's to move electricity from one state to another without losing some in transmission, you have to have an ambient temperature uh, ambient pressure superconductor. If you want the battery in your phone to last 10, 100, or even a thousand times longer, that requires an ambient temperature, ambient pressure superconductor. It looks like they may have invented the whole grail of superconductors. If it turns out to be true, again, literally just came out last week, two validations since then, uh, we are in an exciting time. Really um, exciting. Right. I mean, right now, the way that we do this is really super cool, cool right? I mean, so it's it's bulky. You need liquid oxygen, right? Uh, it, it is not portable. And if you can do it uh, at uh, ambient temperature and ambient pressure, you can also use it for quantum applications, right? Because right now you've got a super cool, yeah, right? It's a, it's a room full of stuff that you uh, require uh, as opposed to being able to um, do it easily. Yeah, I mean, it, you're absolutely right. But so today for a superconductor to work, I mean, you're talking about like negative 200 Celsius, right? And so you're talking about temperatures that are unfathomable in terms of how cold they are, right? Liquid nitrogen, liquid oxygen using the cooled machines. But, but again, to put this in perspective, think about all the uses for steel, for making a sword to the wheel, to a skyscraper, to airplanes. I mean, just the dramatic number of uses if this material turns out to be what they're what they're what they're saying it is, we're going to have that order of change happen. Uh, you want to have uh, quantum computers? This will solve most of those issues. You want to have uh, cold fusion? This will solve many of those issues. You want to reduce the cost of doing an MRI? This will solve most of those issues, and, and the sort of the list goes on and on. So, worth paying attention to, and it overlaps very closely with AI because. The principal issue with AI is compute costs, and we can solve that issue if we have a if LK99 turns out to be the real deal. You know, we we have a tendency of right. I mean, it's ChatGPT, and that's sort of seen as the sexy thing. Whereas actually, what's going on in material sciences, sort of writ large, whether with graphenes and everything else, is actually really stunning for all all of its applications. You know, sort of broadly societally. Trains, uh, transportation, you know, as you said, you know, cell phones, computing, uh, power. Uh, it's, it's, it's really uh, quite amazing. And always a pleasure having you on, John. Uh, really uh, learn a lot. Thank you so much for having me. 